The following message by Shane Sowers is brought to you by Central Baptist Church, Aurora, Colorado. www.cbcaurora.com Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 119. Today we're going to be focusing in on 41, 42. We are in the, the uh, depending on how you, know, how you learned Hebrew, we're either in the wow or the vav part of the Psalm 119 in the, uh, the, the alphabet, Hebrew alphabet. Uh, while you're turning there, a mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense, and he's done it twice, and justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for your mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. As Christians today, mercy is all we can ask for. Foundational to what it means to be a Christian. And yet, as time goes on, as we progress in society today, many times we can lose sight of this truth, this very, very important topic called mercy. We lose sight of the truth, or better yet, I think we lose sight of this reality. Like it or not, mercy is a reality. One theologian said, you cannot dwell too much on the mercy of God. And we know that our God is infinite, right? So if our God is infinite, therefore his mercy is infinite. Therefore, there is no end to the mercy of God. Wow. But it's interesting. Interesting. Let's, let's just think a little bit here today. Interesting, that mercy tends to be somewhat of a passing thought in modern evangelicalism today. Just a simple, quick, simple, quick perusal of, of readily available resources will show its relative scarcity, maybe. And for pretty good reason. I, I think it's for pretty good reason because many of us prefer to hear about the wonders of grace much more than the depths of mercy that the Lord had to show us. And it's interesting as I thought about this. It's just, wow, yes, even if you do a word study, even in scripture, you'll see that grace, the word grace comes up way more than mercy. And I kind of wonder, I wonder sometimes as to why we're naturally inclined to this. And I guess maybe on, on first thought, I think about it, I guess maybe we don't like to be reminded of how we did not receive what we truly deserve. Maybe. Maybe it reminds us of all the things that we did and all the things that we deserve to get that we actually didn't get. We don't like to be reminded of how bad it really is, how bad it really was. But then I wonder, how come? Why is that? Maybe it's because of 
dare I say, our existential pragmatic cultures, philosophy of life, which obviously, this is really important. This is the, the reason why I bring up all of this kind of stuff is because of contextualization. We've got to know what's happening in our culture today so we can see the truth of God much more clearly. Now, the philosophy of life, which obviously influenced the church, makes it very clear that mercy today, the idea of mercy, mercy, people will say, is a characteristic of weakness. That's what our world tells us today. Mercy is weakness. And man, we don't like to be weak. We don't want to be called weak. You know, my, uh, I hated as growing up, my uncle used to call me lame. Man, I, I, to this day, I hate that word. If somebody says, hey, Shane, you know, you're lame. Hey, Shane, that sermon was lame. You know, just out of reflex, I might punch you. Just, just, it's a characteristic of weakness, so we don't like that. Mercy is not well looked upon in culture. It's not well looked upon even by Ghost Rider. Are oh, you Marvel people? Sorry, all out of mercy. That's one of his lines. Could it be that mercy is that thing that keeps us from being the supermen? that our culture wants us to become. It's what Nietzsche and the existentialists will call the ubermensch, supermen. That's our goal in life. Our goal in life is to become supermen, the goal of life. And we have taken on this ideology. Oh, Shane, I don't think that we've taken on that ideology at all. Then why in the world are we so fascinated with superhero movies today? Yeah, Jack, exactly. Why? Yeah, because we've taken on this mentality. So this is what I'm saying. When people say, oh, oh, I'm not influenced by, we're not influenced by all that stuff. Yes, we are. And history has shown the consequences of ideas that we have. And this stuff always finds its way into the church the chief end of man, according to our post-postmodern culture today, is to become supermen. We've got to rise above. We've got to. We've got to get it. And one of the things that will keep us from being the supermen that we've got to be in our culture today is this thing called mercy. I, I, I love it. It's, it's really interesting. You know, uh, some of you, if you're familiar with, with the, the philosophical works of Nietzsche, and, and the reason why I bring up Nietzsche all the time is because we are lying to ourselves if we don't think that that's our culture today. But this is what he said in, in his tongue-in-cheek story that he told about how God died. So he's famous for the God is dead ideology. He stated that it was God's mercy and his compassion that actually killed him. Really, I mean, it's a tongue-in-cheek story Yeah, he just did. He had to come up with something, but that's what he said. And mercy and compassion is the thing that's going to kill society today. So when it comes to, um, when it comes to even our superhero stories, right? So let's think we've all saw, seen like Spider-Man and we've seen all these superhero stories that we have. One of the things that we see is the bad guys will always communicate to the good guy. So here's the good superhero, 
you know? So let's take Spider-Man, Spider-Man, all right? That's my son's favorite superhero. Still, right? Okay, so still, okay. Spider-Man. And then, I know there's a lot of villains, but let's take the Green Goblin. So the Green Goblin is the bad guy, right? And they always point out, yes, Spider-Man, superhuman, he can do all this stuff, you know, unbeatable, all this stuff. And, and you know, they talk about weaknesses and stuff. The bad guys will always say, what is the one thing that the bad guy says is the superhero's weakness? That they have love and compassion for other people. They're trying to protect other people. And because you do that, that's why you're weak and that's why I can defeat you. So even the bad guys are communicating to the good superheroes that you showing mercy and compassion is actually a weakness. A weakness. (laughs) And even our faithful to life story, the movie, The Karate Kid. If you remember the saying that the sensei did at Cobra Kai, mercy is for the weak. Mercy is for the weak. Family, and in the church, many times we can be so caught up with all the work and all the sacrifices that we make that we, uh, that we tend to, by nature, we tend to approach God with the attitude that we are owed something. I see this in the church a lot. When it comes to our prayer, when it comes to asking God for things, when it comes to needing God to help us through certain stuff, we tend to approach God naturally in a way in which we feel like we deserve something or we're owed something. We get caught up with all the work that we've done in the church. We get caught up with all the sacrifices that we have made. Some of you guys may even have a record, like I have absolutely sat through over 300 of Pastor Shane's sermons. I am owed this. Right? And and we tend to approach God with with the the idea of work, with the idea of sacrifice. So we have an attitude as if we deserve something or if we are owed something. Looking to God to give us what we feel like we deserve. That that tends to kind of be our motivation. Just I just want what I what God owes me. Some may say, well, Shane, I don't do that. Oh no then why, if that's not the case, why are we disappointed with God when he doesn't give us what we ask for? Oh, come on. Let's be honest today. If we really didn't feel like we were owed anything or we deserved anything, then if we didn't get it, we wouldn't be upset about it, would we? Let me give you an example. I mean, I'm trying to, uh, for my children, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to get Taylor Swift in my sermon. So I have a ticket. I have no ticket. Let's just say, here's an example. I have no ticket to go to a Taylor Swift concert. I have no ticket. And then I run up backstage, and here comes Taylor Swift, and I'm like, please, please, will you please let me into the concert? Will you please let me? And she says, Sorry, I can't do that, and walks in. Now, I'm standing here, 
disappointed, but it's kind of like, well, you got to try. I have no ticket. I just asked. She said no. Ah, that's a bummer. Now, what if I spent $10,000 to get one of those tickets? I think that's how much some of them are going for now. Now, let's say I spent $10,000 on a ticket and she won't let me in. Now we're going to be fighting. Why? Because I deserve it. Because I'm owed it. I feel like sometimes maybe that ideology is, is with us when we, come, when we approach God and totally bypass the very important thing that we need to see is this thing called mercy. Yes, we love the grace. We love the grace of God. And we love seeing it displayed when we are shown uh, the, the grace when Christ rose from the grave on Easter Sunday and we see the wonderful grace of God displayed. That's awesome. That's why we rejoice. But we can never, ever, ever, must not, cannot forget the incredible mercy of God that was displayed on the cross on Good Friday. You don't get Resurrection Sunday without Good Friday. You don't get the wonderful, amazing grace of God without the wonderful, awesome mercy of God. The Bible makes it very clear. Mercy is not for the weak. James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's take a closer look at mercy in view of the wonderful word of God today in the wow or the vav section of this uh, psalm today. Psalm 119, 41 to 42. Lord, give me your unfailing love, the salvation that you promised me. Then I can answer those who taunt me, for I trust in your word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we do thank you for mercy. And we thank you for the foundations of mercy and the wonderful word that shows us that it's true, that shows us that it's a reality. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at today is some of the key characteristics of the mercy of God shown to us in the scriptures. And the second thing we're going to explore is the deliverance that is displayed and promised for God's people in the scriptures. So our thesis statement today is this, though sin and the pattern of this world cause us to lose sight and or diminish the beauty of mercy... It is the power of God and the truth of scriptures that will cause us to see the wonders of the long-suffering and steadfast love of God and how it brings to us the salvation of all salvations. So point number one, mercy of promise. In essence, it's not like the best definition of it, but I, I kind of like the picture that you get from it. Mercy is essentially not getting what we deserve. You know, and then people will say, well, what is grace? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And of course, justice is getting what we deserve. Unfailing love 
and loving kindness. So if you, in, you know, some of your translations today as we were reading this, um, it talks about, please give me unfailing love, steadfast love, unending love, all this stuff. And those are probably the best way for us to translate the Hebrew word chesed, okay? So unfailing love, loving kindness, but in the context of this, it is an appeal for God's love in the sense that the psalmist is appealing to the love of God to be displayed in the form of what we would call mercy. Now, some of the older translations, like if you have a King James only version, it would actually say, give me mercy, like your mercies. I mean, it's actually translated that way. So unfailing love, loving kindness, that's a, that's a great translation for it, but we need to understand the unfailing love and loving kindness in the sense that he's crying out for the love of God to be displayed in this thing called mercy. Okay, so it, it helps us because the better understanding of the context of trials and tribulation in suffering, when we're suffering, we beg for mercy. <laughs> In trials, we beg for mercy. In tribulation, we beg for this cup to pass from me, don't we? We beg for mercy. In the difficulties of the psalmist, he cries out to the Lord to show him mercy. But is that really what God wants? Hmm. Does God want to show us mercy? Because our culture would say, hey, Mercy is for the weak. God's not weak, so why would God want to show us mercy? Does God want to show us mercy? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31. Deuteronomy 4, 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he has made with your ancestors. One of my favorite passages of scriptures when it comes to mercy is Lamentations 3.22. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Love it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5. But God is so rich in mercy. Not just God has mercy. God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And Psalm 145.9, Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is, all, is over all that he has made. Not just some, all that he has made, God has displayed his mercy. Though mercy may not shine in the limelight like grace, it's still a foundational reality that we cannot go without. It is a theological fact. There is no hope if there is no mercy. There is no life if there is no mercy. There is no joy if there is no mercy. I love Vody Bakum, Dr. Vody Bakum. He writes, do you know it was his mercy that woke you up this morning? I love that. I love that. Do you know that it was his mercy that woke you up this morning? Because his judgment should have killed you last night. Ooh. Well, that'll wake you up. 
Again, mercy is not something we deserve. We did not merit mercy. If we indeed merited or earned mercy, it would not be called mercy, right? It would be called justice. But this is, always has been, and probably always will be one of the difficulties in our walk with Christ. Dependence. Well, I gotta dig deep down, okay? Look deep down in the soul this morning. Dependence. We don't like dependence, man. We really just, we have a difficult time with dependence. This is one of the great realities of the fall. Part of the knowledge of good and evil is the independence that we think comes from it so that we don't have to depend on God. We, we, I'm my own person. I decide what's right and wrong for myself. I decide what it is that I'm supposed to do. I decide this stuff. I don't need people telling me what to do. I don't need God telling me what to do. I don't need God. Well, you know, if there's a time where I need him, I'll call you. God, I'll give you a call. If I need you, prayer. I'll pray when I need you. But other than that, I, I like my independence. I'm good. And, and the thing is, is this is why we naturally like independence. Because another way to say independence is this word called control. <laughs> yeah, there's the button. Man, we like control. Gotta have control. We fight for control. It's our right to have control. Control is everything. I gotta be in control. We, by nature, do not like God to be in control. We like to be in control. We yearn to be in control. Yes, we just need to be in control because we decide for ourselves. But see, it's not just the result of the fall. Like we talked about a little bit earlier, it's the ideology of our post-postmodern culture. You are in control of your own destiny. Don't let anyone tell you different. You make the decision for your own life. Making decisions that affect your future for yourself is the only real freedom a person has. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. We like this. Even the modern church with its life coaching ministries have bought into this. This is the new thing, this life coaching thing. is just amazing to me just how absolutely unbiblical this stuff is. Just the, the self-help principles, the success slogans, the positive thinking and methodologies that's used for businesses applied to Christians. And all that's doing is proving the infiltration of pragmatism in modern evangelicalism. Now watch this. Today, in modern Christianity, it just seems as if it's this way, but being a Christian is synonymous with successful living. If you want to live a successful life, you should become a Christian. <laughs> I got a couple amens out of that. 
Family, this, is, this stuff is just so absolutely unbiblical. But this is evangelicalism buying in to the philosophies of the world. And why is this important? Control. It's just ways for us to have control. And, 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 and I, was, I was talking to this one life coach and I was talking to her about just how every single thing she says, I, I, every, every quote that she made, I brought out a scripture that actually says like the opposite of what she said. And she got really mad at me. And she was just like, well, let me tell you something, Shane. There is nothing in the Bible that says, thou shall not be pragmatic. I said, I said, I get it. I get, I get what you're saying. But you know what? There's something that comes really, really, really close. You remember the scripture where a, a good soldier doesn't get caught up with civilian affairs? Right? Remember that scripture that talks about that's what a Christian, Christians, we should be good soldiers. And good soldiers don't get caught up with civilian affairs. All they want to do is what? Please their commanding officer. Right? Remember that scripture? Yeah, so, you know, for civilian affairs, you know what the Greek word is? Pragmata. It almost says it. We don't get caught up in this stuff. We don't do this kind of stuff. And, and here's the thing, family. We keep lying to ourselves by saying that this is not the case and we are not affected by it. Because in the end, when you look at life, we think the real enemy in life is failure. It's not just the world. It's even the church. That the real enemy in life is failure. Everything that we have in life, we automatically by nature judge things not as right and wrong. We judge things as success and failure. Seriously, think about it. Because we could have things that are morally wrong, but if it brings success, then it must be right. I get this with the church all the time. I, I hear this all the time. It's just like I will, I, I, some individual will ask me about an, a certain pastor uh, who is like completely preaching like false stuff and, and pretty much heretical stuff. And, and I'll say that, well, but, you know, it's really bad stuff. It's just not good. You know, you shouldn't, you know, go blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, yeah, but he's got like 5,000 people in his church. Well, yeah, yeah, I know. But you, it, it's still bad, all this kind of stuff. And you know what the, a common response I get is? That church is big. That church is growing. He must be doing something right. Now, you've heard that before. I'm sure you've heard people say this before. That's not, that's not biblical idea. That's pragmatism. That's our culture today. Right and wrong is based on success and failure. And it's infiltrated the church. We, we got to stop lying to ourselves with this. Now, trust me, this is going to help us today. Just, just hang with me. It, it's, it's what's come in. It's how we look at things, right? I remember I, that example I gave with Randy before Randy left. I said, what ma- you know, the idea is what makes you more upset, right? Let's, let's use Frank. Frank, what hurts more? Frank, you're a bad person. Okay, that, that's not good, but it's not life-ending. Frank, you're a bad person. Now, if I look at Frank and I say, Frank, you're a loser. 
Now we're fighting. <laughs> right? Because loser is synonymous with failure. Failure is wrong. That's the philosophy of our culture. That's the philosophy of our world. Just, just try it this week. Just look at it. Look how many things are judged to be right and wrong based on success and failure. That's our culture today. That's how it is. So we think that our real enemy is failure. We think that the real enemy in life is public opinion. We think the real enemy in life is poverty. We think the real enemy in life is lack of luxury. We think the real enemy in life is the lack of experiences. We think the real enemy in life is no opportunities. We think the real enemy in life is that I don't have the ability to customize things. We think the real enemy in life is a failure. And so... Come to the modern church today. Come to church this Sunday and we will help you not be a failure as a father, as a wife, as a grandparent, as a professional, as an employee, as a friend, as an employer, as an athlete, as an aunt or an uncle, as a cousin, as a social media content creator, as a student, as a boyfriend, as a dog owner, as a citizen, as an American. Come to church and we'll help you not fail in these areas in your life. Say I'm lying. I see these advertised all over the place. And we are going to give you biblical principles to help you order your personal world. Oh, come on, you've heard this. We will help you through biblical principles to get control of your chaotic life. We will help you make sense of who you are. We will help you to not just live, but to live successfully. And success is always defined with the, the definition that the world gives. Always. We will help you to know the secret of living a life pleasing to God so that he will give you the desires of your heart. Hang with me. I'm going to pull the rug out of your feet here pretty soon. One sociologist said that the church is full of people who decided that they cannot be successful, rich, and famous on their own. So they go to church so that God can help them do it. Now, I heard that, and at first I was kind of like, hey, man, don't talk about Christians like that. But I thought about it, and I was just kind of like, huh, I can see why, though, why he would say something like that. That's why he would say something like that. And here's the other thing, but if they are famous, and if they are wealthy, and they're going to church, he says, in essence, what they're doing is hoping that they can rid themselves of guilt and condemnation so that they feel okay about their greed and self-centeredness. Come on. So this is why we like the answers that the church gives. Unbiblical, yes, but the answers that we like that's being given in the church today. We love, love the six principles to godly living. 
We love the four steps into the holy of holies. Right? We got the keys to open the treasure chest. You know, and they got, we got 12 keys to open the treasure chest. As if treasure chests need 12 keys to open it. Here are the, the five principles, the five stone principles to slay your giant. Apply these five principles in your life and your giant will fall. Well, the last time I read that story, David only threw one stone. We like these answers that are given. They're not true, not biblical, but we like them. Why? Why do we like these things? Because the answers give us a sense of control. We love this stuff. We love it. Even if we know, man, these 12 things that he's asked, saying that I got to do in order for God to be on my side, that's steep. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. That's okay. We're still okay with that. You know why? Because it's still a possibility that I can do this. Like one day I could actually be superhuman and actually be feeling good and I'll actually be able to jump all 12 of these hurdles and then God will be happy with me. I can do it. I can't do it right now, but I can do it someday. It's the sense that we have some kind of control. Hey, Jack, can you stop that really quick? This isn't in my sermon. It just popped into my mind. But do you, do you, know, who, you know where you get this from? Like, this is what I don't understand. This is really confusing to me. So like, think about Osteen, right? <laughs> so constantly in, in the sermons, he's always bringing up, right, these six things that you need to do. You know, you need to read the Bible more. You know, if you just spend more time praying. You know, if, you, if you're nice to people. You know, if you can do about six or seven good deeds to another person a day. You know, and then you need to, you know, uh, make sure that you memorize at least one scripture a week. You know, you need to be nice to your wife. Be nice to your husband. Don't get into a fight with your wife. Don't get into, and all these principles. And if you do all of this stuff, God will be pleased with you. And they're clapping. Yeah, 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 this is great. This is great. I was so inspired by that. And I'm thinking the whole time going, you're not going to do that. Seriously. The stuff that he gets, it is not encouraging. If that really was what I needed to do in order for God to be pleased with me, he is never, ever going to be pleased with me. It's not a joy. It's not something. When I listen to the sermons, I don't get all excited. I get more condemned. You know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, that's what I love about, you know, the preachers like Osteen. Their messages are so encouraging. They're, they're not condemning at all. It's just, you know, it's just, it's all, it's all this, it's nice and it's all this. And I'm like, what are you listening to? It is absolutely condemning. You are not going to do those things. There's no way you're going to be able to fulfill that. Oh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life and live the next 20 years of my life and never get into a fight with your spouse? I, would, I just want to look at Joel and say, uh, who exactly are you married to? What, 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 is, what is that? Why do we like that? 
because it gives us a sense of control. Like we can do it. We can do that. So because we feel like we can do it, then we're encouraged by it because at least we know, hey, I may not be able to do it now, but I may be able to do it one day and I will be pleasing to God and therefore receive all the things that he promised me, which is a lie. But that's, that's what they walk away with. I don't get that. I don't get it. And you're appealing and you're appealing to that. And it doesn't work out. And then after that, you get the pitch for money. Here's the thing I love about these prosperity preacher, teacher, stuff like that. Why is it that when, when we need money, they teach us how to appeal to God, but when they need money, they appeal to us? Yeah. Anyway, okay, Jack, sorry. I'm sorry, this, this is Ben. And the, the idea, the reason why we like it is because we get this sense of control. All the answers. Okay, we do this. If only I do these things, I'll be in a better place. I got to do these five steps. I'll be, it'll be better for me. Even though life is not getting better, as long as we feel like we have the ability to get ourselves out when we want, we're good. Even when there's no peace, we're still okay. Even if we know that by our efforts, we're still in control, we can bring peace to our lives. One of the reasons why I, I, that it was really disillusioned for me growing up with the whole rapture thing. Did you guys ever have parents and aunts and uncles that threatened the rapture? Shane, don't go out, don't go out there and do bad things because you don't know if Jesus is coming back. And you, know, you don't want to be at the dance club when the rapture happens. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, right? You don't want to be you know, trying to take that puff of, puff of that joint that somebody just gave you. You're going to hit that joint, and then, and then the rapture, the trumpets, like, dee, 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 and everyone starts to go. And because you were trying to do drugs, you get left behind, right? Don't do this. Don't do that. You don't want to be caught with that, right? But see, the idea is, that's, that's interesting when it comes to the end time stuff, why, why we follow the end times thing too. And I bring this up because it's super popular today, right? Like everyone's talking end time stuff. But we want to see these signs, right? These signs. And, and, and if the signs that we see, it's just showing us that the, the, the Jesus is coming, right? Is close. So the more these things happen, the closer it is. All that does is say, well, as long as these things haven't been happening, then Jesus isn't coming back right away, so therefore I can do what I want to do. And then, when you start to see these signs, I'm going to start living my life better. All of this stuff is just us having control. I have control over as if we have control over this. You know, I'm young right now. You know, I'm not going to be dying for a while. So I'm going to live life the way I want to live. I'm going to do things that I want to do. And then when I get closer to dying, I'll start going to church again. As if we have some kind of control over this. You see what I mean? We love control. We got to have control. We fight for it. We need it. As long as we have control. Even with psychological behavior studies of children, you know, uh, it's one of the behavior things that happens, this is really interesting. One of the things that happens when it comes to children who are abandoned by their parents, did you know that for a child, that's one of the most unthinkable things. They cannot process it. They cannot understand it. Nobody can understand why a parent would abandon their kid. 
the one person who cannot, absolutely cannot understand that is the kid. This is, this is why kids can be in, um, in abusive homes where, where parents are absolutely abusing them to the point of death and the kid still wants to stay. They cannot fathom the idea of them, their parents leaving them, right? So it's just unthinkable to the mind of a child that a parent would abandon them for no real reason. So as long as they believe that there is something wrong with them, then there is a hope that their parents will like them if they become a successful person. Because there's no way my parents are going to abandon me for no reason, so there must have been a reason. Well, but dude, they abandoned you when you were a baby. I must have been an ugly baby. Maybe as a baby, I cried too much. Maybe as a baby, I ate too much. There's got to be something wrong with me in order to justify why my parents abandoned me. And as long as I think that there is something wrong with me, then it justifies why my parents abandoned me. That's why a lot of them never want to be better people. Because as long as they can stay messed up, as long as they can say, I'm a loser, I'm screwed up, they find comfort in the fact that my parents only abandoned me because I'm a loser, because I'm a screw up. So therefore, it it makes sense. Now, if I become a better person, control, I become likable to my parents and they will like me. They will come back. So they will come back when I become a better person. But if they don't come back, I find comfort knowing that I'm good, but I'm not good enough. And if I can just work a little harder, then I'll be good enough someday, and they'll come back, and they'll like me. And as long as I'm doing that, I feel comfort. You know what all that stuff is? Control. We need control. Even in bad situations like this, being abandoned by the parents, we still find comfort in the sense that we've got control. In the end, it's control. We have comfort and we have hope as long as there's a sense of some kind of control over things. We want control. We yearn for control. We just have to have control. Just have to have control. One of you, one of you ladies? Or, okay. Oh, I wasn't pointing at them. Yes, Donna, you got to deal with your control issue. No. Um, Donna, Donna's going to play piano for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I kind of look like I was pointing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you. I'm talking about you. <laughs> I lost my spot. In the end, family, it's about control. We have comfort and we have hope as long as there is a sense of some kind of control in our lives over things. We want control. We yearn from control. We just have to have control. And that is probably the reason for our natural aversion to this thing called mercy. Because anytime we appeal to mercy, you know what it means? We have no control. Natural. By nature. We have no control. There's no control 
when it comes to mercy. We don't have any control over it. None. It's something that we have no control over. It's unmerited. It's uninfluenced. It's undeserved. If it is, it's not mercy, it's justice. And mercy is our lifeblood. There's no life without mercy. Mercy is our foundation. There's no building or growing without mercy. Mercy is our hope. There's no deliverance or salvation without mercy. Mercy is who our God is. There is no life and life more abundant without mercy. We celebrate all the benefits and wonders of all we get and all that we become with the beautiful resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the grave on Easter Sunday. But none of this comes without the death of Christ on the cross on Good Friday. Mercy is vital to the Christian. Mercy may be backstage to grace, but there is no grace without mercy. And so here it is, as we close. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's the real problem. I gave you a whole bunch of problems that our world is talking about. But here's the real problem in life. It's not that, it's, it, 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 sure, some of these things that I mentioned before are frustrating and they're real irritation. But let me tell you what is a real problem. Do you know that we have absolutely and undeniably infuriated the living God with our sin and rebellion? See, I don't think that we we don't hear this enough. That's why I don't think that we really can grasp this. Maybe we need to just continue to hear it more. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Romans 1, 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He's talking about mankind, right? Romans 1, talking about mankind. Now here it is. God shows his anger. This is really important. If you get this, this is going to help you. The Greek word that he uses for anger here is the Greek word orge kind of weird, yeah, that he would use that word orge in the context of anger and wrath. Because, be a little bit vivid here this morning, what word will come to your mind as where we get our English word from the Greek word orge? Orgy? Yeah, I know, we're going to be a little vivid, just a little. Orgy. But here's the thing that we've got to understand why the Apostle Paul used orge for this. Because when we think of the English word orgy, what are we thinking of? (laughs) We're thinking of unbridled, the highest and most extreme form of lust and perversion, aren't we? I mean, that's just like the highest. So this is the vivid picture of God's anger here. The vivid picture is the wrath of the living God the wrath of the living God now, the God that created heaven and earth, is unbridled, the highest and most extreme form of fury possible. See, I think we read Romans 8, we say the anger of God, like God was just mad. No, God is absolutely 100% furious. And we have infuriated the living God 
and he has promised to punish with wrath and fury the sin and rebellion of people on earth. And we know that the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one on earth who always does good and never sins. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We like sheep have gone astray. We are all by nature children of wrath, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal darkness and eternal fire is in our future. I would say that that's pretty bad. And that situation right there trumps all the problems that I, I think that we would face here on earth. So, so they would say, hey, I think, Shane, our real problem in life is failure. No, our real problem in life is that we have absolutely infuriated the living God and he promised to punish sin and rebellion. Sure, you could be a failure for 70, 80 years, let's say. Or you can face the eternal wrath of God for eternity. That's the real reality. And all this lying and all this stuff that we're doing and all this thing that, that's happening, there, have, there is consequences and it's eternal ones. And so many people believing these lies are gonna burn in hell for eternity. It's not the truth. What's worse, and here's what makes the problem even worse, there is nothing we can do about it. Nothing. We can't fix this in any way. We can't make it right. All of this is completely 100% out of our control. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing we can pay, nothing we can give, nothing we can sacrifice. We have one hope and one hope only. You know what that one hope is? Is that the living God who we did infuriate to the maximum will have mercy on us. That's all we got. And this is what's awesome. Did you know that he did? Our Lord is compassionate. He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always strive. He will not accuse us nor remain angry forever. He doesn't punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve, Psalm 103. He continued to show us mercy as the scriptures promised. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He continued to show mercy that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Do you know what else he did? He continued to show us mercy. Christ came into this world to seek and save that which was lost. You know what else he did? He continued to show us mercy. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You know what he did after that? He continued to show us mercy. By his wounds, we are healed. And because 
he continued to show us mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. (laughs) Then he gives us grace. And the promise to save comes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation according to his promise. And you know what else? He gave us more grace on top of that. There's the promise continues that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you know what else he did? He continued to show us grace by giving us another promise that all of this is written so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing we will have life in his name. You know what he did after that? He showed us even more grace and gave us another promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, family, what an awesome and amazing God we serve. Man, we deserve so much, yet he showed us mercy. And all of this we find. If you say, hey, Shane, man, that's incredible, man. Do I believe all this? All of this stuff is in the word of the living God. And because there is, there's no more accusation. There's no more condemnation. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no need for us to be ashamed, no matter what the accuser says. His promise is yes and amen. So the accuser, the taunter, the condemner, the liar, the reproacher are all silenced in light of the word of our living and merciful God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. For more information about Central Baptist Church, go to www.cbcaurora.com.